Good afternoon. It's so good to be with you again, and we appreciate very much you tuning in and studying God's Word with us today. In our recent reading and study of the book of Jeremiah, I was sobered by the fact that Jehovah had told his disobedient children in Judah that he had determined to war against them. And so if you turn back there to Jeremiah 21 and just kind of glance very quickly at a few verses from that chapter, it is interesting the change of relationship that has taken place because of the choices and the lives that the people of Israel you know, were making. So there in chapter 21, verse 3, it says, Then Jeremiah said to them, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans, who are besieging you outside the wall, and I will gather them into the center of the city. And now listen, verse 5. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation, I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city. So we see here, unfaithful King Zedekiah had sent word to the prophet Jeremiah to ask if God would at least deal kindly with them in some way and cause the Babylonians to withdraw you know, from their siege around the city. Basically, God's answer was, Babylon is not your biggest problem. I am. No way was Judah and Jerusalem going to come out of this particular predicament that they had gotten themselves into themselves. This was not going to turn out well for them. There, it wasn't going to turn into a blessing for, for these Israelites with destruction looming in their near future. The fact that God had decided to war against the very people, the very nation that he had fathered, that he had redeemed, then led me to start thinking about and remembering the wise words of the Jew Gamaliel. If you recall in the book of Acts, you have the apostles of Christ were arrested and they are before the Jewish council who are seriously considering to execute them all. But a respected teacher of the law by the name of Gamaliel warned the council against such rash actions. And his warning concluded with this statement, If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else, you may even be found fighting against God. That idea of fighting against God, to me, is, is an interesting thought that is fearful, somewhat terrifying. The Jews throughout their history had been a stiff-necked people. They had been hard hearts who had resisted God and resisted His Word and here in Acts, most of the Jews rejected the Messiah. 
They, they rejected the very Messiah that God had sent to them to save them. Now this morning I want us to look at two other New Testament characters who illustrate to us how we could maybe find ourselves fighting against God ourselves. There was a moment in the Apostle Peter's life when he actually fought against God. If you will turn your Bibles to the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to turn over there and very quickly read some familiar verses when Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus, and in turn, he gets rebuked by Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 26, you look there in verse 21, where it says, From that time, Jesus, excuse me, Matthew 16, Matthew 16, you know, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer Suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. This account actually follows the preceding paragraph where we are told about the confession of Peter that he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And what an amazing confession that was that he there boldly pronounced, yes, I do believe in you. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you're the son of the living God. And so sometime after that, this account occurs, where Jesus is now warning them what's going to transpire, trying to get them ready for his death, but then that would lead to the victory of his resurrection. But Peter took that and then turned it around and... Try to say, well, this shouldn't happen, Lord. He didn't like what Jesus was saying. He didn't approve of what Jesus was telling them about what was going to happen to him at the hands of the Jewish leadership. Peter believed in Jesus. He believed that he was the Christ. He believed that he was the Son of God. He loved the Lord. In Gethsemane, as we know, he was ready to fight. He drew a sword and cut somebody's ear off ready to to defend his king, his lord. But Peter's disagreement here with Jesus was a disagreement, I believe, that grew out of good intentions. That he was wrong. No matter how good his intentions may have been, he was wrong. He was wrong to oppose God. He was wrong to oppose God's plan that Jesus had to die. So in a sense, Peter momentarily aligned himself with Satan. 
Momentarily, he aligned himself with the adversary of God by simply setting his mind on what he thought was best. The irony of this is that he wanted to save Jesus' life, I believe. But the truth was, it was selfishness. The things of God often do not perfectly line up with man's concerns, or our cares, or our wisdom. So we need to ask ourselves, can Jesus' disciples today, can Christians today make the same mistake? Can we make a similar mistake like Peter, where we insert our own interests, we insert our own thoughts in an attempt to, to spare Christians the hardships of taking the Lord's narrow path? Or maybe trying to use man's wisdom to interpret what God says is right to lessen the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. All that Peter did here in his rebuke was to express his concern, his love, his care for Jesus. But Jesus says, you're fighting me. You're hindering me. You're discouraging me because your mind is not where it needs to be. You're not thinking the way God wants you to think. You're thinking like a man. And then we turn to another example found over in Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, where when Saul is introduced to us in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, yeah, the particular time period uh, of Saul's life is described as a time period where he was kicking against the goads because he was fighting against Christ. In, Matthew, excuse me, in Acts chapter 26, it is the Apostle Paul now, the same man, Saul, who has now become the Apostle Paul, is giving, giving a defense before King Agrippa. And he's giving offense before the king because he's been imprisoned for the cause of Christ. But notice what he says about a time period in his life before he was a Christian, before he became a believer and a follower of truth. Beginning there in verse 9, it reads, So then I thought to myself I had to do many things hostile, hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, 
I heard a voice. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In persecuting faithful Christians, Saul actually was hurting himself more than them. It was like driving a, a sharp instrument deeply into his foot. Now, now, he was very passionate about what he was doing. He was very passionate about his convictions. With his whole heart, he believed that Jews who were converted to Jesus Christ were rebelling against Jehovah. They were, they were violating the law of Moses and deserved the death penalty. He believed that wholeheartedly with passion. And it's for that reason he, he, he went to foreign cities to drag converted Jews, Christians, so they would be thrown into prison or even put to death. But what Saul did not know, what he didn't realize when he was doing this, was that the God whom Saul was endeavoring to fervently obey was the very one he was fighting against. He was opposing the God, Jehovah, when he was persecuting Christ. And so, for him to continue on this path that he was on for a while, for him to continue on this path of fighting against Jesus, persecuting Jesus, was a sure way to fail, not only in this life, but also in eternity. When Paul writes to the evangelist, the preacher Timothy, years later, and now he's, he is the faithful, diligent apostle Paul, and when he reflects upon this time period of his life, when he was not in the Lord. He was not obeying Jehovah because he had not become a believer. He describes himself as one who acted ignorantly in unbelief. 1 Timothy 1.13 what, what that implies is that men can be misinformed. Men can be misled. Ignorance can blind a person to the truth, even if the truth is obvious and it's evident. A person can be devoutly religious and still be alienated from the God he's trying to serve and in turn lost eternally. But such is not an excuse. It's not an excuse to reject God's plan. It's not an excuse to reject the plan of, that rescues and saves sinners through Jesus Christ and through the gospel of his kingdom. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And Saul had to face those facts or spend the rest of his life fighting a losing battle 
against the true and living God. In our world today, I would suggest to you that most people live in hostility toward God. That is, all the so-called good and bad people live in hostility toward God. They're living a life, you know, they're practicing their faiths in opposition to the truth. In James chapter 4, verse 4, we are told, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In that same context, you know, we're, we're told, it talks about quarrels and conflicts and lust and pleasures. And these things are deeds of the flesh. Deeds which many people relish doing because they set their minds on gratifying their appetites. You know, why do people quarrel? Because they want to quarrel. You know, why do people pursue lust? Because they want to pursue those lusts. They engage in simple pleasures because they find it satisfying. And so by the Holy Spirit, James tells us and warns us, admonishes us, whoever, believer or unbeliever, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And God will war against us. Men make alliances with the world because they love the world. They love the world of lust and pride. As talked about over in the first epistle of John in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, where the apostle John exhorts and admonishes, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the, pride, the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father. It is from the world. Clearly in that context of the epistle of 1 John, the love of God, the love of our Heavenly Father cannot reside in us while we love worldly things. We can't love Two lords, we can't love two masters. And so when we choose the world, when we do that, we're rejecting God. We're fighting against everything that God stands for. We cannot abide in the light with God while we are in the darkness. And so we must be careful not to deceive ourselves. To think that we can live a life that is in hostility to God and still be accepted. In Romans, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul teaches us that a mind that is set on the flesh is fighting against God. So let's read just a few verses here. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6 through verse 8. Romans 8, verse 6 through 8. It says, The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law 
of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's sobering. When we are, when we are told that a mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, we are his enemy in that state. So, what do we focus on? What do we think about? What do we treasure? What do we devote ourselves pursuing? What do we, what do we listen to? What do we talk about? We're told here in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that this carnal-minded person is one who does not subject himself to God's laws. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Now, I can be viewed or looked upon by the world as a, as a good moral person while, all, while in reality, I may be fleshly minded because I choose not to keep God's commandments. I choose not to submit to the, to the divine law that is given to us, a law of liberty in Jesus Christ. So the question we should, we should ask ourselves at times is, who is Lord in my life? Who really is Lord? My choices, my actions should reflect that. Who is my king? In the same letter to the Romans, in chapter 6, verse 16, Paul stated, or asked this question, Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? Who is our Lord? Who's our king? Whose laws are we surrendering to? Is it God or is it Satan? Is it Christ or is it man? Is it righteousness or is it sin? A mind set on the flesh is death. A mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. But on the positive side, a mind that is set on Christ, a mind that is set on heavenly things, what, what does it do? Well, in Colossians chapter 3, you can glance there at the first few verses of that chapter where Christians in the church at Colossae are being told to set their minds in the right direction, on the right person, on the right things. And so when you glance in this context, we see, first of all, a mind that is set on Christ, a mind that is set on heavenly things, does not practice fornication and impurity. A mind that is set on Christ and on heavenly things does not practice evil desire, greed, anger, slander, abusive speech, and lying. He doesn't do those kind of things. Those things are hostile toward God. And when we practice those things, we're opposing God. And God wars against us. But he goes on to say what a Christ-minded person does do, though. Not only there are things he doesn't do, there are things he does do. And so we see, as you continue to read and glance in the context here, that Christ-mindedness then puts on compassion and humility. Patience and forbearance, forgiveness and love. Those are the kind of things that should be evident 
by our deeds and our words and our thoughts and our actions. He goes on even to say that he is one who, who himself, you know, conducts himself in such a manner that he is always in accord with Christ's authority. It's done in the name of the Lord. It is by, done by the word of the Lord in both his teaching and in his worship. For example, just very quickly reading there in verse 15 of the third chapter of, of, the, of Colossians. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's what the mind of Christ does. And yet, when you turn over to Revelation chapter 2, you look there in Revelation chapter 2, we see our Lord and King Jesus Christ promising to make war with his mouth against Christians who turn aside to false teachings. And so here we look at some verses that are addressed to the church in Pergamum. And so he says there, beginning in verse 14, I have a few things against you, speaking to the saints in that church. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit immorality. So you also have some who are in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming. I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Accursed is everyone who preaches a different gospel than the one Christ's apostles preached, Galatians 1 9. To heed teaching that is, that is different from the one faith, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4 1, is to actually pay attention to deceitful spirits or doctrines of demons or devils. Or over in 2 Timothy 4 4, where we are warned about turning away from the truth of sound doctrine is to end up following a lie. Falsehood and error will not be condoned. And what we draw from this is the simple fact that God wars against all unrighteousness. God wars against all injustice, no matter who we are, even his own children when they mind the things of this world, when they mind the things of the flesh, when they mind the things of error. So we need to be careful. We need to be watchful. We need to stay alert. We need to be awake. And we need to live in such a way with circumspection, with wisdom, 
to make sure that we are living according to the Lord's will. Because without God and without Christ, we cannot overwhelmingly conquer tribulation or distress. We cannot overwhelmingly conquer persecution or famine or peril or sword. We cannot overwhelmingly conquer without God and without Christ. And if God is against us, who can deliver us? Who can save us? The simple answer is no one. No one. But the power and the beauty of the gospel is this. That with God, with the Heavenly Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can be delivered. We can be justified. We can overcome. And one day, we will be glorified. But it begins by surrendering. Surrendering to God. Surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to His gospel. And observing all that He's commanded walking in the light as God is in the light, abiding in the doctrine of Christ so that we may have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And all those who do that, all those who surrender wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ and His will will be saved, will be delivered, and will not be forsaken by their God. Thank you so much for studying with us today. We want to urge you to weigh your soul salvation in light of what the gospel reveals. If you're a Christian, and we can assist you in any way in making your life right with the Lord, praying with you, praying for you, please contact us. Let us know how we can help you spiritually. But if you're not a Christian, we want to urge you in a very sober way to think of the seriousness of your state before God. That God wars against the disobedient. God wars against the unrighteous. God wars against those who practice injustice. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.